Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the Faithful and for the Faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCready. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. 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 I was out skating this morning, so skating. Eh? It's always a good day when you start off. It's it's it is one of the best exercises, just public skating you can engage in. It's uh. Good for your balance, good for your strength, and good for your cardiovascular. So, if you got a rink in your neighborhood, get out there. Although then everyone will get out there and the rinks will be too crowded, but that's okay too. All right, um, Bruce, we will be talking today on the podcast about the Oilers' prospects. That's the main thing we have up in the next month, and we're moving on. We're moving on to cover the prospects. Can you hear me? Or... I can. I, David, i got to run grab something. You just carry okay. on for a minute. Sorry. Sure thing. We will be talking about um, the Connor McDavid's place in history, uh, hockey history, and how there is one Toronto Maple Leaf who, so far at least, has had a greater career than Connor McDavid in terms of career value, at least according to some work that I did. That player is not Austin Matthews, but we'll get into who he is momentarily. Um, we will talk about uh, some different, a key difference between the Las Vegas Golden Knights and the Edmonton Oilers. Bruce did a post on that. But we'll start off the podcast with a wee bit of news. The Oilers have brought in a player on a PTO, Brandon Sutter, from the famous Sutter family. He is one of their sons. Who's who's his dad, Bruce? Oh, Brandon Sutter. Is it Brent? <laughs> we don't know. Oh, uh, there's so many Sutters and sons of I mean, Sutters and cousins and Brandon Sutter's father. Anyway, he's 34. He had a fairly decent career as a checking center with a number of teams, uh, the Vancouver Canucks, um, being his last or not as you know he was good. He was okay in Vancouver. Where else was he, Bruce? Philadelphia? His father is Brent Sutter. His uncles are Brian, Daryl, Dwayne, Rich, and Ron. His cousins are Sean, Brett, Brody, Luke, and Riley. And his brother is Merrick. <laughs> so he, his dad's Brent, who was, dad's I Brent, think, the, Islanders. the best of the Sutters, right? Yeah, like I the, um, you know, and Brian Sutter was a really, really good hockey yeah. player, too. Yeah. But Brent was the best player. He was the only probably Team Canada quality Sutter, and he did play on Team Canada, I think, in 80, 87? 84. 84? 84, yeah. When Trache defected to play for the U.S., I just brought in the Islanders' second-line center, uh, Brent Sutter, and he was really good in that Canada Cup. Yeah, by 84, he actually might have been a better player than Brian Trache, truth be told. Like, he... Trotsky was slowing down by then, and Sutter was taking off as a two-way hockey player. He, he had a 100-point season right after that, as I recall. It was a sort yeah, of the yeah. Canada Cup was his running start at his best season. So Brandon Sutter is uh, 6'3", about 200 pounds. He he like he he went through Red Deer as a lot of the Sutters have done. He uh, started out with Carolina, played in Pittsburgh, and then Vancouver. And his best year in Pittsburgh was. Um, 2014-15 when he scored 21 goals. He really hasn't been a, a regular, like a solid regular player since 2017-18. And he hasn't even played 
the last couple of years as the result of long COVID. And as we know, COVID is a virus that can really mess with different systems in the body. And so it hits some people really hard. And he's one of them. Um, I understand Jonathan Taves is too. So he has been out. He's been unable to, um, you know, his career was winding down anyway. Like, if yeah. I'm completely honest, in 2021, he had 12 points in 43 games for Vancouver. He was minus nine. I mean, he was still on a big contract then, so he, he would have hung, hung around. But he was... He, he was ineffective, fairly ineffective that year before he got long COVID. And he had been fairly ineffective, with in, mainly with injury, um, for a couple couple seasons. Injury had taken a lot out of him, as it does with you know most hockey players, especially those who play a grinding style. So, Bruce, the chances, it strikes me, well, you let give me a percentage chance that he makes the Oilers, and then he's in, you know, that he's a regular on the Oilers by the playoffs. What would you say? Those two things. What uh, odds? I I put it at ten percent tops. That he'd make the Oilers. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, to me, it's a long shot unless um, somehow he's enjoyed some sort of physical. Um, uh, comeback you know because i mean he was he was going through the sort of the aging span when he was 29 30 31 scored four eight nine goals his last three years mind you none of them in anything close to 80 games i mean it's the other problem right like he's barely played uh played games in that time and then he got long COVID, and he's been basically off the ice for two years and i guess he wants to give it a try, and he found a team that will get, let, let him give it a try. And uh, unless he's Kirill Tulipov uh, and sets about injuring his own teammates in, in the uh, Joey Moss Cup, um, I don't see a lot of harm in it. I think they're playing eight preseason games in 13 days. Uh, they have... Uh, uh, league rules about the number of uh, so-called veterans that must be in the lineup for every preseason game because I have to justify the ridiculous cost of preseason tickets, which at least I see now is coming down compared to regular season. But um, uh, so guys like him, uh, often these PTOs are the guys that are flying to Winnipeg, you know, for that one day uh, hated road trip that uh, – uh, players take and they need veterans in that game too and the veterans tend to be the pto guys and the guys at the you know very bottom that are just scrambling for any chance they can get and they'll happily go to winnipeg to get that chance and in recent years we've seen ptos like uh, uh colton sevier uh and uh, uh even jake burton and you know how much as i thought that was a terrible public relations move uh he did play a few games and satisfy that requirement well that's one of the purposes of those guys is they help the team through that and all the winnipeg fans complain they're not getting to see mcdavid and Drysdale and so on can at least say well at least we got to see brandon sutter playing tonight and uh, so <laughs> it'll be a big bigger much bigger moment for brandon sutter than it will be for him yeah, so we don't actually know um, the extent of his illness, right? So we don't know right. what he's coming back from and how low he got. Mm-hmm. And and but four four months ago, he gave an interview, a fairly extensive interview, and mm-hmm. it, he sounded at that point that he was, as he put it, feeling better. 
you right. know, starting to feel normal again. Right. But there's a there's a there's a big gap between starting to feel normal and um, being ready to play in the NHL, and um, especially for a 34 year old forward who who you know couldn't couldn't afford to lose a step. So yeah, I'm going to put it at I think 10 percent is about right that he makes the team, and then five percent that he um, still in the lineup by the playoffs and is is useful useful competitor. This does seem like um, a favor to the player. Maybe you can use it as a springboard to get a contract in Europe, um, or maybe just a minor league contract in in Bakersfield. Like if he shows enough that he could be like a help out down there. I don't know if they need a center. They already have like Malone, don't they, and McKeg. So they're they're kind of heavy in that kind of veteran center aspect already. But um, yeah, good luck to him and. Um, he, uh, you know, he, for years he was mentioned as a player of interest for the Oilers, yeah. but it does seem like one of those, one of those ones that it's kind of come and gone for him as a player, Bruce. And I just want to say, like, um, your Kirill Tulipov, is that it? Is it Tulipov? Yeah. That reference is kind of like, I, I wouldn't want to be your, your wife in an argument because you remember every... Past He's a legend. Kirill Tulipov is a legend. He's the guy who put out Ben Eager. And who remembers we, that, Bruce? Nobody remembers. Like, you, lots you've of got, people remember Trulipov. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I he, remember he was it, a legend. You he he your put out Ben Eager in the Joey Moss Cup with a vicious boarding check. And then we have two pictures of file on of Tulipov, and both of them involve him hitting Taylor Hall. One time when Hall was on his own team, and he took a run at the guy on the other team and creamed Hall. And then the other one was obviously from the same Joey Moss Cup where they're both wearing Oilers sweaters, but one's blue and one's white. And at least he's hitting the guy supposedly on the other team. Well, it was Taylor Hall, you know, top Oiler at the time, which was 2011, I think it was. Yeah, that was the year they got eager. And he was just chaos. And and he was well, like anti-Turvainen, anti, anti only dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I remember when anti-Turvainen hit that um, Zamboni. Zamboni and knocked him back. <laughs> Now, but I'm just saying, Bruce, in, a, in an argument, your wife must just dread it because you're going to bring up, you remember things like 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And uh, does she have the same kind of memory for your? Uh, uh, no, what, <laughs> sometimes I forget to eat lunch, right? So if she's got her, she's got her uh, avenues of attack and we rarely debate, you know, uh, who was the, who was the top um player in the original six era or something like that where i might actually have have an edge so but she doesn't it's not in your wheelhouse your arguments that it's <laughs> <laughs> she's fighting on her territory yeah. <laughs> you're the invading force coming off the off the off the beach into the mesquite into the uh, machine gun nest okay mm -hmm. i got it all right like all husbands um Oh, that's a cliche. Kirill, Kirill Tulipov injuring Ben Eager is sort of, it was sort of from the classic from the decade of darkness, from incidents that include uh, Taylor Hall getting his face stepped on by Corey Power Potter play and by uh, 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 Neil Yakupov getting hauled down by the linesman and, uh, and in, getting injured. Like there's a whole bunch of these sort of weird stories that happened that wound up with guys getting hurt out of just sort of weird yeah. stuff, right? Inter-squad games, pre-game warm-ups, you know, linesmen, clumsy linesmen, come on. 
Taylor Hall wipe out in front of Potter? Is that how that happened? Did he he got. Down? I think he got tripped by Smeed. Oh. And then Potter, he went down in front of him, no helmet right. on. Potter tried to jump over him, but didn't, and stepped right on his face. Oh, it was gross and dangerous and scary. And oh. so, Oilers, it was just unreal. So uh, You look at those Oilers rosters from then, and you can see why they might have brought in Phil to the pub. They were so desperate for anyone yeah. who could do anything. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, <laughs> there's an expectation the Oilers will bring in two or three, four players on PTO. Mm-hmm. Probably, yep. as you say, for that big night in Winnipeg. Yeah. Winnipeg road trip. They're going to bring in some guys on PTOs. Probably a D-man. You can expect that. So, yep. you know, there's can stay home. All mm-hmm. right. Moving on, Bruce. Um, I We talked briefly about the, the what I call the 14% solution on our last podcast for the Oilers. You know, now that they have Jeff Jackson as their GM, which, which you know, and not their GM. I'm jumping ahead of myself here. But um, as their um, CEO, uh, Kurt Levins in his post highlighted the truth of that matter. That was a brilliant move by Daryl Cates. Daryl Cates is taking a lot of heat in Edmonton. Probably some of it justified, you know, depending on your feelings about public subsidies for private, for, you know, essentially what becomes a private arena. And... And fair enough, that's that's completely fair. But and then he took a lot of heat for the first ten years of the decade of darkness, which he also deserved to some extent, even though he was putting a lot of money and effort into it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's working smart, there's working hard, and there's working smart. And he was not working smart. He he, um, they hired the wrong people to lead the team. Essentially, yeah. it took him a long time to get it right. But Bruce. Uh, and as Kurt, as Kurt's post made clear, I just think this really was a brilliant move by Cates. Um, it's amazing in a way that another team hadn't hired him, especially a team that wanted to sign McDavid. Now, maybe Jackson wouldn't have gone to any other team but Edmonton. Maybe it, maybe that's what it took to get him to leap into NHL management. But um, I just want to put a exclamation mark on that hiring. I, I do think... You know, for someone he he who checks all those boxes that a hockey executive, um, other than being Connor McDavid's agent, if he hadn't been Connor's McDavid's agent, this would have been a really great signing. But because of that, it's just like this is a s- slam dunk, and you can't. You know, it's not still not sure that McDavid will resign here. I know that, but man, so I was looking at his contract, and I think that there's a chance. He'll do what what Crosby did and sign for a similar amount as he's making now, which is twelve point five million dollars a year. I think Leon's going to want a big raise because he's been underpaid compared to his value. I mean, so is McDavid. McDavid should be getting maximum contract. But I think it, it, it's funny, you know. There's been a lot of focus on how players at the bottom end of the lineup are squeezed and they can only make the minimum amount. But really. The players giving up the most money, getting squeezed the most in terms of pure dollar amount are the players at the very top end who aren't getting paid anywhere near. Like they're all like the very, very, the superstars really do sell the tickets. They really do drive sales. And Connor McDavid is the reason you can charge as much as in Edmonton as you can for a ticket. So he should be earning the maximum and he's going to take some kind of almost sure, assuredly, he will take some kind of haircut. In a way that other players don't, you know, Nurse and Nugent Hopkins and Kane, you know, in theory, they might have got more in some other place, but they all got pretty good contracts. It's the guy at the top end 
who really has to to suck it up actually for everybody else and to help the team compete. And the interesting thing is Crosby Malkin did that. Bruce, if both McDavid and Dreisaitl do that and sign for $12.5 million a year, essentially the same amount of money, which is what um, Malkin and Crosby did for the, the vast majority of their careers in Pittsburgh, that'll mean $10 million in extra cap space, essentially, each year for the Edmonton Oilers to use on other players. You know, right now, it's $2.5 million a year for McDavid that he could have got mm-hmm. that, they, that they can use on other players because he didn't get greedy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It could be on the next contract, it could be even be more than that because oh. the cap's going up. And yeah. he may, he might just decide, and, and, and again, I have no opinion on what he should do, just thinking about looking at history and, and thinking about what might happen. It might be as much as $10 million in cap space, $5 million each. Because Drysaddle, I also think, could get 20, 20%. If he wanted to maximize his contract and he went as a UFA, I think Leon could get a, a 20% contract, okay. 20% of the cap, at least on a short-term deal. He could sign for like three years in some city for the, the 20% amount. I don't have any, I have zero doubt about that. I do only because we haven't yet seen any players sign to the maximum amount, but I don't doubt that he could, you know, achieve a very, very high, you know, top three in the league type salary. So we haven't seen a player with that kind of value, um, have we? Maybe Carlson, but even then, wasn't Carlson a little bit? damaged goods when he hit the market there was some uncertainty about him when he signed that 11.5 million dollar contract per year i think let me just google that and see yeah, if you're talking was. about play, yeah our carlson's been i'm talking about other players who have hit the market in the off. nhl right and anyway so not, not guys who were re-signed by their own team like mckinnon but no they're guys they're some of these top end guys are just taking it for their team they really are uh or were in the case of mckinnon yeah, Carlson had st- stepped back a bit as a player from his very peak season. Mm-hmm. Um, he hadn't been that injured yet, but he was minus 25 plus minus in the year that he Give signed his new contract. And he had 62 points in 71 games. But Eric Carlson is obviously such a fantastic Give hockey player. Give or take Matt Cook stomping on his Achilles heel. But Yeah. <sighs> These guys. That was gross. That was gross. <clears throat> anyway, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, there's yet to be a case of a team either internally to our own player or externally paying the twenty percent. Indeed, and that's I true. Don't, I don't see it's happening. Um, if it doesn't happen with McDavid, then who the hell will it happen for? And maybe some other team that's desperate to get contend, but some team with twenty million dollars in cap space. Chances are good they're not that close. And someone yeah. like Leon might say, well, geez, do I want to take $20 million to go and play in Anaheim or do I want to take 14 to play in Edmonton or whatever it works out to be? So, What do you think they'll sign for, Bruce, if you had to guess? I think they'll both get significant raises and I think McDavid will be north of 15 and Leon will be where McDavid was or... or thereabouts so i'm thinking 28 mil for the two of them somewhere in that range i'm gonna go with 
my 12.5 each. Okay. I think that they're both going to take, I think that they're, at this point, they've made a lot of money and they're both going to, Drysaddle will, will get a big raise and they're both going to really suck it up and um, take less of a cap hit so they can be on a team which is more able to compete for the Stanley Cup. That is my prediction. All right. Um, Bruce, we were, one of the things um, that I think about, I don't know why, maybe because I read so much Bill James as a kid, is he was kind of obsessed with um, ranking players on an all-time list. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he did it in baseball. The statistics are so fantastic in terms of rating offensive, you know, batting. You can really see who was the best hitter. And there's not a whole lot of debate about um, offensive play. Similar to the NHL, I guess, but um, so he he um, he had an interesting take on it, though. He didn't like when modern writers would look back and rate players based on the current modern day narratives about certain players, because he thought those were distorted and inaccurate often. And what he liked to do is go back and look at. Um, what people thought of them at the time, and really uh, what people thought of them as reflected in MVP votes. So I had re- I read his H- historical baseball abstract, which is a fantastic book. If you're interested in um, analytics, any kind of analytics, it's one of the books you should read. And in that book, he detailed um, his his rankings of players. And so what I did based on that is I just thought, okay. We're, rate, we're ranking and rating the best of players. Let's just look at who won the MVP awards year after year and who won the MVP in the playoffs, the Conn Smythe. And based on who wins those awards, let's just make a list of who essentially three points if you won the MVP award, three points if you won the Conn Smythe award. I gave them equal weight because I do think they're of equal value. And then um, I gave essentially um, two points for the player who finished second in the uh, Hart Trophy voting, MVP voting, and then one point for the position players, best position player. So three for the top, two for the second, and then I filled out the roster with another winger or if two wingers sometimes if a defenseman had won, and then two defensemen and a goalie, and they all got one point based on the MVP voting. Right. So, so that's how almost, it worked. Almost like they probably closely match the All Star. They um, they do, but they're not exact because there's sometimes perfect. some weirdness. Mm-hmm. So, right now, Bruce Connor McDavid on the on the so for career value and handing out points that way, Connor McDavid ranks. He's had the fifteenth. Um, highest career value of any player in the NHL. He's the 15th best player who's ever played the game according to this system of analysis. That's not that bad. The only other modern players in the top 50 right now, um, he are um, Sidney Crosby, who's fifth overall all time. Mm-hmm. He's got um, 20 points. The, the leader, put that in perspective, the leader Wayne Gretzky has 37 points, career points. Gordie Howe has 29, number two. Bobby Orr in three, 25. Mary Lemieux, 21. Sidney Crosby and Nicholas Lidstrom, 20 each. Um, because defensemen no longer win the Hart Trophy, 
in the start after 1940, they just stopped winning the Hart Trophy for some reason because I think the, they they thought all oh, the best defenders sure. the Norris Norris Trophy. So I started to give the best defenseman every year instead of a like one point I gave would give them two I would give them second place automatically since the they were Norris kind of trophy to the, to ever won the Norris yeah so okay. Lids, that's why Lidstrom is he won a lot of Norris trophies he's got twenty points Beliveau Jean Beliveau nineteen Eddie Shore nineteen Maurice Richard sixteen points Ray Bork sixteen Howie Morenz fifteen points Doug Harvey fifteen points Alex <sighs> Ovechkin fourteen Ted Kennedy the only Toronto Maple Leaf ahead of Connor McDavid. Sorry, Leaf fans, it's not Austin Matthews. 14 points for Ted Kennedy and 13 for McDavid. Carlson is, Eric Carlson is actually 24th on the list, which is, you know, he has been a remarkable player. And I think um, Pittsburgh might have uh, made quite a good acquisition here in the short term. The only other player still playing in the top 50, I think that's it, actually. Kale McCarr ranks 59th, Bruce. He's got six points already. Kale McCarr, Kale McCarr may move up into the top 20, maybe into the top 10 before it's all over. He looks like he is going to make some moves. So, Yeah, well, that's a very, very impressive list, David. When you, I mean, just when you just look at the names and not the numbers or how it was derived. Gretzky, Howe, or Lemieux, Crosby. I mean, what's there to argue with, really? Leedstrom, Beliveau, Shore, Richard, Bork. I mean, these are all-time greats. The game spread across many eras. And then, of course, our third group, Morenz, Harvey, Ovechkin, Kennedy, and McDavid, with Kennedy being the surprise, and I think, because he was awarded... Uh, in retrospect, three virtual con smice. And of course, that was not done by reporters of the day, but subsequent reporters. Kind of hockey and, historians. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he got the one MVP right at the end of his career when it was almost a career achievement award that they, because Toronto finished last and he won the MVP in 1955. And uh, that, uh, uh, but I mean, these are just. Um, you you can quibble with this case or that, and I would say the goalies maybe are a little underrepresented because they don't have an they don't win MVPs either. But uh, but they do now and then, like Jose no, once in a while. Yeah, once in a while for sure. Uh, Carey More Price. often than D men do. Carey, yeah, they they have. You're right, Bruce, but they are Dominic Hasek, mm-hmm. Jose Theodore, mm-hmm. Carey Price. Uh, I'd be tempted to add a second point for Vezina Trophy winners, but of course the the, uh, uh, Vezina Trophy changed its actual standards in 1981, so that would introduce another headache. So maybe the first All-Star team goalie, you could do that. You might you might consider that as like the best goalie, because the Vezina has changed its meaning. Then uh, the great uh, uh, Stony Plain stopper uh, Glenn Hall. Would be way higher on this list than he was. Yeah, he won that's a lot not of a bad awards. suggestion, Bruce. I was he thinking that too. Awards. He's got six points here, and I'm thinking, eh, I think he's a little higher than that. But you know, like I say, it's quibbling. Some would say Mark Messier only 28th. How can that be? But uh, he plays second fiddle for a, a big chunk of his career, right? I mean, I'm sure Malkin's not super high on this list either, right? No, he's on the list, but he's, he's on not it. Super yeah, high. he won. He won MVP. 
But, yeah. And of course, uh, ICA one too. And yeah, just uh, but names all across the uh, the eras. Nell Stewart, Old Poison. Nell Stewart loved his nickname. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie. That was Conniker. his nickname. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Conacher, he retired with as the NHL's all-time leading goal scorer, 324, and he was eventually passed by Maurice Richard, and was eventually passed by Gordy Howe, who was eventually passed by Wayne Gretzky. So Nell Stewart is on that list of guys who once led the. I mean, this is a this is a super scorer who doesn't get a lot of. But by your method, there's his name, you know, 29th on the list, tied with Phil Esposito, for goodness sake, another second fiddle. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, there's no imposters in here, let's put it that way. These are, uh, these are great players from across the full 106-year now history of NHL. The highest goalie is Patrick at 16th. All those Conn Smythe, eh? All those Conn Smythe trophies. So that's what yeah. pushed him up there. You're right. Like it's that's a that's a that's probably not a bad suggestion in terms of thinking of a way to improve the list is to um, try to, you know, give maybe give the goalies a little bit more mm-hmm. due. There's a lot of goalies on the list, but they're they're down usually. They have six and eight points, yeah. Yeah. The strength of the list, I think it it doesn't it does it, it does represent fairly, fairly each era. It, it it elevates players who are long forgotten by most fans. Like if you said to most fans, you know, that Jack Dara was a hell of a player. <laughs> was he black Jack Dara? Like no one would even, I don't, like I hardly know who he played for or what he did. And he was a senator. Earl Siebert, like whoever, you know, who yeah. knows Earl Siebert. Early, Bill, early. Bill, is, is, is it Bill Cowley? Bill Cowley, yeah. Yeah, Bill it was Cowley. his record that Gretzky broke. Uh, Cowley had uh, 71 points in 36 games for 1.97 points per game. And when Gretzky got got past 160 in 1980-81, he got to over two points a game, the first guy to do it. But it was Bill Cowley's record that he broke. Yeah. I, I like this list because it just mixes all these great names together, right? The great names of old. And... Um, makes them seem a little fresh again and then also mm-hmm. puts into context McDavid, you know, yeah. he's right behind Ovechkin and Kennedy and he's right ahead. He's tied with Rod, Bill Cowley, Red Kelly and Guy Lafleur. He's already had as great a career, career value as Guy Lafleur. Be nice to get Red a couple Kelly. standing ups in there. Or Red Kelly. Wow. Or Red Kelly. Fantastic. Two careers. One as a Norris trophy class defenseman with Detroit and one as a Frank Selke class center with Toronto. And, he, and he's just ahead. Spirit. He won eight cups too. Like you, you yeah. have no credit for cups here at all, right? I, I don't because, yeah. I mean, for one thing, like if you if you advance to the second round now and win the second round, you, you've gotten by, what, seven teams to get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, eight, yeah, seven. You've gotten by it seven teams. punish modern players, you're right. That's the same as winning the Stanley Cup in the days of Ted Kennedy. Now, Ted Kennedy's team, I think they won five Stanley Cups. Seven you know, years. So, so like people, people wondering, why is Ted Kennedy? Like, who is Ted Kennedy, first of all? And why is he on the list? Well, he was the best player on a Toronto Maple Leaf team that won five Stanley Cups in in six in I think seven years. So he was he was he was an out he was the outstanding playoff competitor of his time. Uh and and it wasn't close. 
you know, he was he was just a fantastic two way hockey player and the heart and soul of a, of one of the best no. teams that ever that ever was. One of the, probably the most under like it's funny they're underrated from Toronto. Like who's ever heard of that team? But uh, he was the man. I read a few books about that team, so I have. But uh, yeah, they won. Uh, uh, 42, 45, 47, 48, 49, and then 51. So six in 10 years. And uh, the only guy that might even come close to uh, Kennedy for reputation at the time as a great playoff performer would be the great Turk Broda. Netlander, oh, yeah. yeah. That uh, was widely recognized as, as a clutch stopper, as happens with goalies who uh-huh. win cups. Uh-huh. Was Bill Spunska on that team? Now that I couldn't tell you for sure. Oh, you didn't. That's a. I got you, Bruce. Bill you didn't get Spunska. that. You didn't get that. That's one of the few old-time hockey references. That's he's not a real player. Oh, he's okay. the he is the protagonist of Scrubs oh, on Scott skates? Young's Scrubs on Skates. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got the book on my shelf. I read it many many years ago. Forgot his name though. And, I guess he's uh, no Bronk Burnett. It was actually a series. The first one is, is it was written by Scott Young, who is Neil singer songwriter Neil Young's father. Scott Young was a tremendous writer for the. He's my idol Trump. as a writer. I read Toronto. his book. I read his Scott Young sports stories and Scott Young, the Leafs I knew, uh, over and over again as a kid, and was well, one of the things that got me into into writing about hockey in particular. I wouldn't. I don't think I've ever read the Leafs I I knew. You know, I met Scott Young. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book of short stories. Mm-hmm. on about christmas oh yeah they were very well done and mm-hmm. he, he did a little book and i he went on an author's tour and in the i think in the late 1990s i interviewed him mm-hmm. um about that book and the the interesting thing about the book is the dedication it's for neil and this was written um no i think actually the dedication of scrubs on skates or boy on defense which is the other book in that series and then there's that old gang of mine, which was written later anyway. But the, right. the, the dedication of Boy on Defense, I think, is for Neil and Scott Young's other son, who I can't remember um, his name. And those are fat. Like, if you want to get a maybe they'd seem kind of dated for a modern uh, mm-hmm. a modern kid. But those are really great hockey books. They're about this, um, I think, a Polish immigrant who uh, tries to break into his high school hockey team. And um, and about his rise through hockey, and the third book in the series, that old gang of mine, is written like 20 years later by the author, and it's about 10 years later in the lives of the characters, and they they get together to play for the Canadian national team. So, are you looking for Scrubs on Skates? Yeah, I am. I, I have a very old volume of that, I think, somewhere around the house as well. Yeah, it's somewhere down in the. Uh... Elsewhere in the house, I just recently found a copy in a used bookstore and grabbed it, intending to read it, but I haven't yet. I gotta get that that Leafs book by Scott Young. See if I what's it called? The Leafs I the Leafs I knew, and it's a diary style book of it's just his selected columns, hockey columns. Oh yeah, snippets of columns that he wrote between 1958 uh, to spring of 1963 which is exactly when I started watching. So he gave sort of a, and I was a Leafs fan, he gave sort of the prior five years from the arrival of Johnny Bauer and, you know, the the, the, the punch Imlach 
arrival in Toronto in the beginning. So he gives a really great backdrop for that sort of 10 year run of, uh, of that club. And the second half of it, I experienced myself as a fan. So it was like a perfect segue. And, and he writes so, so well, and he, and he, and he so well captures, um, you know, some of the, just the guts of the game, you know, there's, there's things that Scott Young wrote in 1959. That's true. Uh, and it's true today. Like, I remember he was writing about a big hit one time and he, his moral of the story was that the player who skates, skates with his head down will soon wind up with no head at all in this league. And I'm not sure that's changed really all that much. You know, you skate with your head down. You know, it's the end Still could be some near. Wicked, <laughs> wicked hits. Recently, there was one of the Toronto Maple Leafs camp. I think they, the Maple Leafs had Kirill Tulipov at their training yeah, camp that day. Yeah, that was a Tulipov. That was a very Tulipov kind of moment, wasn't it? Was, it was, yes. Who got yeah. hit? Uh, their, top draft, their top draft their top choice draft. from last year got, got hammered. Finnish kid got hammered by this big, tough scrub, scrub on skates. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Um, moving on. Bruce, we're writing our prospect series. Mm. And um, you're, you've written the first post. I, I thought the most interesting thing from your post was just the massive amount of turnover. Mm-hmm. There's two things that stand out. Of course, the orders because of trades and trading draft picks and uh, trading players who have been drafted are yep. really, they're really uh, short on prospects right now. As short yep. as we've been in. The whole time long. we've been doing this. Yeah. They're short on prospects. Why don't you go down the list and just tell us who's off the list? Yeah, well, this was last year's list. Uh, 2022, we had 31 prospects at that time, which was four fewer than the year before because Holland had traded a bunch of draft picks at that time. Well, last year, we also graduated a bunch of players. Last year, there was four first-round picks in the top five. And this year, three of them are gone. Two of them basically promoted to the NHL, at least by our standards. They're no longer rookies. That would be Broberg and Holloway, who have, uh, you know, both played 50 games last year. And then uh, the third first-round pick who's gone is uh, Reed Schaefer, who was included in the Matthias Ekholm trade. So there's only one left. In fact, there's only one player left from the top seven of last year. Broberg graduated, Holloway graduated, Skinner, our number three, graduated to the NHL, and he had a very strong season. He was the only one of these guys who actually played the entire year in the NHL, the ones who graduated. The others are still working their way in. Xavier Borgo still here. Ray Schaefer traded for Ekholm. Marcus Niemelainen has uh, played over 20 games for the second straight year, so he's no longer a rookie. Dmitry Smorkov traded for Klim Kostin, who helped the team last year, but, you know, Smorkov is gone. Uh, Vincent DeHarnay graduated to the NHL from number 10. Michael Kesslering from 13 was traded for Nick Bugstad. So here they've got guys helping the team directly that got promoted to the NHL. And they have three players that they picked up in trades over the course of the season that all helped the team in the down the stretch and in the playoffs, Ekholm, Costin, and Bugstad. So they're basically using the same source, not only for supply of young players, but they're culling them out to, to bring in uh, uh, more experienced players. So they're, they're sort of double tapping, so to speak, the uh, farm system to uh, to 
speed up the process as much as possible. Still develop the guys at at a at a at a reasonable rate, but but what's new is this trading trading out prospects for other players. It used to be once they got a prospect, he stayed in the system for a while until they basically let the guy go. And especially if he was a first round pick, he would stay in the system for a long while. I mean, last year, until the Pugliarvi trade, Oilers had their last 10 first round draft picks all under contract. So that changed in a big way with Pugliarvi traded, uh, Yamamoto traded, uh, uh, Schaefer traded, and the 2023 number one traded before it was ever selected. And so the list has been thinned out in that way. And between uh, between the graduations and the and the uh, trades, or as I call them, the headline promotions and deals, uh, the, their list is way thinned out. And we have a lot of guys. Like I'm not going to reveal who's number one or any of that stuff. But there's a whole bunch of guys that like moved up five or seven spots. And like, well, that's promising. He went from number 14 to number six or whatever. Well, that's because eight guys in front of him got disappeared off of the list and maybe he's, you know, just sort of making regular progress, but we've got a few that sort of, wow, did he ever soar this year? And it's, I think it's just because of the, the, the list above is relatively vacant. So you would expect those guys to move up. Then there was a sad case of Noah Philp who retired when he was looking like a real strong prospect with a good chance to make the orders. I think even this season, and other than that, a couple guys way down at the bottom of the list just sort of dispensed with it. Of the guys that they lost, six were in the top seven, and nine were in the top 16. And so there's wide open spaces at the, at the top of the list and, and uh, in various ways. And also, they traded enough draft choices. They traded four draft choices last year. They only added three guys through the draft, not seven. So the replenishment of these vacancies is not happening at the rate because Holland is, I got to say it, all in, trading picks, trading prospects, trading uh, to you know to maximize his team in the short run, moving guys out for salary retention. You know, like there's a lot of moving pieces, and it seems to me that the large majority of them are are are, are focused on the team in the here and now and not down the road and. The prospect system's shriveling up a little bit, and you wrote an article a while back how one of the Byron Bader had them ranked 28th out of 32, and it's just the other end of the cycle, right? When you're building a team, you get a zillion draft picks and prospects, and it all looks great, but you're five years away from being any good in the NHL. I'd rather be where the orders are right now. I Thank noticed you. one one interesting <laughs> fact that I didn't know at all mm-hmm. from your it was the Oilers traded number 23rd overall prospect, Philip Engras, for Garrett Van Wy. Garrett, Garrett Van, Van Wy, Wy. Oh, why? Why? That's a name I had never heard. I was going to make a joke about that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. This was a minor league deal, and I don't know what's happened to Garrett Van Wy, but well, he, uh, he is a, not under an NHL contract, which is... He's an ECHL player. We, we rate guys, and this is a this is an important clarification for our, our project. We rate guys who are under NHL class contracts or on the reserve list, drafted but not yet signed, and we do not rate guys on AHL contracts, even though there may emerge one or two guys from the AHL, as indeed we saw last year with Vincent DeHarnay and James Hamblin, 
finding time in the NHL who originally were on AHL contracts. So it can happen, but you thought it would be a slippery slope to start analyzing 15 guys on AHL contracts. And one thing that has happened under, under Holland is there are way more, I think, way more AHL contracts and relatively fewer uh, Oiler players placed in the, in the system. And, and I guess I would have to back that up by doing some actual analysis, but I'm pretty sure that would be the case. I was thinking about James Hamlin on uh, who's on, uh, he was number 12 last year. It's funny, like, even though he played some games with the Oilers this year, when we, when people talk about fourth line center right now, you never hear his name mentioned. And I guess he, I guess people just felt he was fairly, like he didn't seem to take a step up and he was fairly underwhelming with the Oilers when he was here. Like he didn't really make it, make a huge positive impression on people, but that's, that's interesting. Bruce. Um, so this year uh, for our list, you voted, I voted, Kurt Levins voted. And we also, um, you know, Jim Matheson, the hall of fame hockey writer at the Edmonton journal, he voted, which is always fantastic. Thanks Jim. He's done for several years now. He yeah, has, I think it's five the fifth, or five or fifth year years. in a row. Yeah. And we also had um, our friend Ira Cooper, original Puzar, uh, on Twitter, he um, he voted uh, he uh, voted in the list. Uh, he, I I was hoping he would vote because he watches he watched a lot of Bakersfield games this year and he, he had a much better idea, game. much better idea of those, the value mm-hmm. of those players than I do. So mm-hmm. I was glad that he participated. Bruce, did he correct something like a fact that we had last week with on the McLeod contract? What was that about? It was um, oh. We, what was what was the um, the information we had there? I think you were saying that when McLeod was, if he was awarded, oh the two year, yeah the two the year thing, and I was wrong, and yeah. and he corrected me that uh, uh, my understanding of the, of the process is that uh, whichever team, whichever side asks for the arbitration, almost always the player, very occasionally the team. The other side has the opportunity to stipulate whether it's a one or two year contract. And what wasn't clear to me and what I got wrong was I thought the arbitrator awarded the amount and then the team say, oh, we like that price, we'll do a second year. But no, the team has to tell the arbitrator before they start, is this for one year or is this for two? And then he takes that into account when trying to come up with a fair figure. So it's actually, it's actually way fair. I just had it wrong. Okay, so if McLeod... Yeah, well, CBA got me again. <laughs> <laughs> you got cba We get cba on a regular basis <laughs> on this podcast, Bruce. We're, we are not the experts that uh, Ira mm-hmm. is. You know, not to defend ourselves, but few people really... You know, you can count on one hand the people who talk in public about hockey, who know all the ins and outs, or who know most of the ins and outs of the CBA... And Ira is, for an Oilers fan, he's kind of the go-to guy, I think. If he, if he says something, and then there's, you know, there's the cap-friendly um, dude. Yeah. He's Hart, really good. Hart Levine from Puckpedia is, is a right. real strong. Uh, oh, that's, uh, it's not yeah. a cap-friendly. Yeah. It's Hart Levine from Puckpedia. Hart is excellent. Yeah. Hart's excellent. So, and, and Ira actually will sometimes ask uh, Hart. Uh, that's like, a lie. And, and Hart will answer, which is really yes, nice. As so he will. He's, he's, he's outstanding. Thank you, Ira. You know, the thank input of those Hart. two guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both those guys are fantastic, you know, sharing their knowledge. Ira is mm-hmm. a lawyer. I don't know what Hart's <laughs> background is, but he is a smart dude as well. So mm-hmm. good for those guys helping us all out. And, 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 and in talking to Ira about this, 
even as a lawyer, mm-hmm. it's sometimes not clear to him reading the reading the CBA um, what what a particular answer is to a particular question. It's it's somewhat vague, and then comes down to precedent, like what's been decided. You know, you know, how's this played out in the real world, and that's when you know what the answer is. So there we go. All right, so we have this list, and uh, Bruce, you did the first post, and you you did you you did little um, a little bit of a brief summary of players. I think tw- our list goes to twenty seven players this year. Mm-hmm. So between you you went from twenty one to twenty seven. What do you what, what do you say about this group of players, Bruce? Uh, in general, is there anyone? I I thought one player stood out as a possible maybe like, uh-huh. for. The, John, that's the that Capone kid who Matt was drafted. Capone is guy. I yeah. kind of like him the best out of these guys too. But uh, I mean, he's a seventh round draft choice from 2023, so it takes a long stretch to get from there to the NHL. Uh, and uh, he's uh, yeah. uh, he reminds me he's a right shot de- center with you know a good good reputation as a defensive player, and. Um, uh, his points totals showed, you know, it was a real surge uh, last year. He went from nine points to 29 points in his sophomore year. And uh, I, I liked what I saw of him at Dev Camp, but he's just, you know, he's 5'11", 174. Uh, so he's not, a, he's not a huge man. And, you know, he's he's in there as one of these guys that could surprise, right? He's he's James Hamlin, maybe, or maybe That's not what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, and I'm trying to even think of the guy who uh, went in uh, the other Swedish or the other Finnish guy. Uh, just let me catch his name here. I think it was 26. Rassinen? Yeah, yeah Pelle Rassinen. Who for years, you know, he, he was a right shot defensive center playing U.S. college. He was progressing nicely. He looked like he might be, but he wound up going back to Finland, which I guess Matt Capoli won't be going back to Finland but uh, he uh, uh, you know it's a player in that class and every once in a while one will one will Become work Todd out. Todd Marchant. Mm-hmm. You know he was Todd Marchant drafted in the seventh round of the 1993 mm-hmm. draft just a little guy but right. um, just a fantastic skater I don't know if Capone skating is as good as Todd Marchant's but what usually defines this kind of player it. If they're going to make the NHL, they've got to be mm-hmm. they've got to be three things for this kind of player, this class of player. They got to be a really great skater. Mm-hmm. They've got to be fierce. They have to be fierce in competition, yeah. and they have to be smart defensively. They've got to be ultra sound, ultra smart defensively. So this is Hamblin's. Like if Hamblin's going to move forward, for instance, he's he's a good skater. But from what I saw, he's he's got he's got to up his ferocity. He's got to become a meaner hockey player, and he's got to be just completely sound on defense. It's got to be his whole focus on the ice. Is they are not scoring when I'm on the ice, and I'm going to be covering that guy like crazy. And if that happens, if all those three things come together, and there's no injury uh, for the player, they, yeah, they have a chance of certainly having a long pro career in in AHL in Europe. And just maybe becoming a Todd Marchant-like player who managed to last 1,195 games in the NHL. Sure. So that's kind of top of class for this kind of player. Yeah. And um, it happens now and then. And it could yeah, happen it to Capone, right? It could, it, have, it could happen to Hamlin. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just for every 
30 or 40 of that kind of player, only one of them becomes. Yeah. Uh, this guy was already 20 when he got picked too, which generally yeah. works against him. But in this case, they've got two more years of information on him. And what he did between year one and year two uh, in college changed the equation enough. And I mean, seventh round pick, it's not like they invested a massive gamble in the guy. They just got his rights. And we'll see. But he, he is a player of interest. And of all the others, I mean, this maybe a little bit reflects our own bias, David, when we're voting. I know it does mine, of draft pedigree being one of the uh, one of the um, uh, parameters, especially guys that are that aren't even around yet. And here, here are the guys: Jeremiah Lindewald, drafted number two hundred; Maxine Dineskin, drafted one ninety three; Thomas Missouri, one sixty two; Nathaniel Day, uh, one eighty four. Matt Capone, 216, and Samuel Johnson, number 158. None of them signed, all on the reserve list. So all what our friend Lowtide calls distant bells, and maybe sometime down the road. I mean, most of these guys maybe won't even come over, you know, the European guys. And then number 21, the highest of the seven, Carl Berglund, who wasn't even drafted at all, but the reason that I rated him a little higher was that he's actually got a contract. He's going to be playing hockey right under the noses of, uh, you know, Keith Gretzky and the staff in uh, uh, in Bakersfield. Presumably he makes Bakersfield this year, and uh, at least, you know, he's he's visible. I mean, what the heck is Thomas Missouri doing? Nobody knows, right? But at least we'll be able to keep tabs on Berglund, and, and so it's to me, that put them just that little tiny margin ahead of these other long shots. But they're all, you know, just by definition of how they came into the organization, drafted so late and not even signed yet, that they are very much long shots. So that, that's what they all yeah. have in common. We're just, we're just, we're just reading tea leaves. You know, what mm-hmm. do the Oilers think of them? Like, where, what do the NHL mm-hmm. scouts think of them? Well, you can tell by where they're drafted. And, and mm-hmm. if they get a contract, well, then they must they thought well enough to give them an NHL contract. So we're, we put weight in that. Like none of those right. players have, we might've seen them at dev camp skate like you might've this year, but other than that, we haven't even seen them skate. Right. So uh, right. Bruce, uh, one, I know you got to get going here. So I'm going to end what I have to say, at least with Todd, one quick Todd Marchant story. Mm-hmm. It was one of the underrated trades of all time for the orders. They traded Craig McTavish right at the end of his career uh, to the New York Rangers, and they got Todd Marchant in return. So they traded one of the best third-line centers ever in the NHL, and they got one of the best third-line centers ever in the NHL in return. The funny thing is, Kevin Prendergast was the scout who recommended the trade, and for some reason, he had it in his <laughs> he had it in his head that Todd Marchant was like 200 pounds, uh-huh. and he was this this bigger player that they were mm-hmm. trading for. And I don't, you know, it was a different era, right? Like. You, they didn't have video on all the players. They they were often right. going by reference. Mm-hmm. You know, they talked to their buddy, like who, well, who should we get? Like who's good in their system? Well, Todd Marchand. So when when uh, Kevin Prendergast re- recommended Todd Marchand to Glenn Sather, he, he was sold as this you know solid two way player, two hundred pound player. He <laughs> he arrives in Edmonton, and of course he's five ten, one hundred and seventy five. Mm-hmm. And everyone, like, Pendergrass was just like, oh, my God. But as soon as they, Marshawn got on the ice <laughs> and they could saw how he could skate, all was well. All was mm-hmm. well. Because yep, uh, yep. that guy could... was as fast a skater as, as we've seen in Edmonton. Is that fair? 
he's close. He's fast, I think McDavid. I think McDavid's yeah, probably Coffee's certainly with the puck. <laughs> yeah, with the I'll puck. I'll take McDavid with the puck. If I was to compare a modern oiler to Marshawn, it would be Ryan McLeod. And it's not that great of a comparison, no, but it's, you know, bottom six center, lots of speed. Uh, you know, his his speed is his greatest weapon. Certainly he's a lot sort of lankier guy. Uh, but yeah, I would certainly take and find room for Todd Marchand on this team in a New York minute. Boy, wouldn't he be good in his prime on this first <laughs> team? Yeah. If yeah. Ryan McLeod can be as good as Todd Marchand, that yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, that's a, that's something to aspire to. Yeah. yeah crossed well bruce uh any other thoughts anything you'd like to add i'm going to continue on with the prospect series today unless right signed but right um, yeah and we're going to count down quickly to 15 because this year we actually uh, there's just not enough depth to even write the 20 individual posts that we've done in the past it's just the list is too short i never actually mentioned that in my post but you'll do 16 to 20 then we'll get into the one at a time after that and yeah. uh, all else i've got is just a a little fun project I did on the how teams were built, Stanley Cup champion teams were built. And I compared Vegas to the Oilers of 2023. See what the, and, the, and that was chalk and cheese. One was built through the draft expansion. Which Oilers draft. did you? Which Oilers did you compare to the Vegas team? Uh, well, first of all, the 23 Oilers, and okay. then I went back and compared them to the 1985 Oilers, which was the only yes. other team in NHL history to win the Stanley Cup in their sixth year in the league. Which was, you know, Vegas's huge accomplishment this year. Uh, you know, expansion team wins cup after just six years. And 85 Oilers, of course, that was their second cup. And that was, in fact, the team that was named the team of the century for the NHL in 2017. So this was a comparison that looked very good from an Oilers perspective to Vegas. And I did find comp- lots of similarities. Like they did build through the expansion draft. They made a few trades around the expansion draft that proved to be really important for adding players. But the total difference was the draft where six-year-old Vegas Golden Knights have one player that they drafted themselves, Nicholas Haig, number 34 overall. Good player. Good player. One player that they drafted themselves six wow. years later, whereas the team of the century had uh, – Kevin Lowe, Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, Paul Coffey, Yari Curry, Andy Moe, Grant Fuhrer, uh, Esatikinen even played on that team. I mean, we're talking about like numerous halls, Hall of Famers, and it's just the team was, they were both expansion teams. They both came in with a cluster of guys they picked off the rest of the league, and then they went in two totally different directions. Vegas was all in on trades and weaponizing cap space, which was not an issue in 1985. Like some of the comparisons just can't be done. And in some ways, I found this was an interesting way to compare the actual eras. What did it take to build a successful team? But ultimately, my takeaway was the same as it's been from all of the other ones I've done in this series, dating back to 2020. There are as many ways to build a champion as there are champions. It's just Good point, different Bruce. ways of doing it, and there's no sort of one true, one true formula. It's, and it's interesting to say, hey, look, this team did it this way, this team did it that way. Which is better? I don't know, but it's kind of interesting to see the different ways they went about it. And so this this one, I always wanted to, to apply this back to the early Oilers. And Vegas winning as an expansion team gave me the excuse to do this. Was a, yeah. This was a personal fun project. It's this, uh, this was uh, 1985. It was kind of my wheelhouse as a fan. I don't very often talk about it, really. 
You know, it's it's such a good point because when a team wins the cup, you'll often get people going on social media and say, that's how you do it. This draft and development. The Oilers are terrible at draft and development. They got to get into draft and development. And and it's and then the same person five years later, and it's often the same person who has this kind of emphatic, I'm right response, probably me. But anyway, other people like me as well. Uh, it's like five years later, yeah, you have to be super aggressive and make trades. You can't wait around for your draft picks to, to develop into players. You got to get on this. You got to you got to move players. You got to be ruthless. That's the new that's the new idea in hockey. Mm-hmm. You got to be ruthless Hello. like Las Vegas. Like and, uh, Kelly, yeah, and it's just Kelly it's McCrimmon. Just like, he was ruthless and has been ruthless. Yeah, but and but Bruce, what you said, that's mm-hmm. you got it. You nailed mm-hmm. it. There are as many ways to build a Stanley Cup championship team as there are Stanley Cup champions. They're all built differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back for a while there was, a, well, McDavid has got to win a cup in the first three years. And if he doesn't, it all, all is lost, right? Because you have this entry level window and that's right. when, and we all were going on about that. And then it's like a different idea and a different idea. And it's like, just listen, there are, yeah. there's different ways to do it. And we'll see. You know, you know, what we're hoping on now is the kind of the Washington Capitals method of winning the Stanley Cup or the old Pittsburgh Penguins. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get the superstar and it's going to take a while, but slowly you build a team around him and then you eventually win. That's what we're kind of hoping for now. Yeah. Well, the 2020 and 21 Bolts, uh, their power was great drafting on day two of the draft where they got guys like Kucherov, Point. Point. Sorelli, Killorn, Palat, you know, I mean, fantastic players that they got on day two of the draft. Then the 22 champions, Colorado Avalanche, had exactly zero players from day two of the draft. Not a single one. All their draft choices were like top 10 first round picks. Not that different from the Oilers. McCarr, then, McKinnon, Rantanen, Lattisgog. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Byram. Uh, and then, and nothing yeah. after that because they well the part they traded a bunch of second round picks or players they picked with second round picks and then this year we have Vegas with one draft pick period no first rounders and one third pairing defenseman and yet they found a different way to make it work and that's the fascinating part of this comparison is is there's no one true formula but what do these teams do and maybe how lucky did they get what broke right for them to help them win? Cause there's always some of that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. There's no one truth except that there is no one truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Bruce. That's the one truth. <laughs> that is the one truth. There's no, there's only one truth. And that is that there's no, no one, one truth. truth. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> that is a, uh, the philosophy of uh, Polish philosopher, uh, I think his name is Witold Wibczynski. No, mm-hmm. Korzybski. Mm-hmm. Great political philosopher. All right, Bruce, let's move on. Yep. Thanks for talking today. Yep. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>